Welcome to the Electric Rodeo, an adult toy megastore podcast about sex, pleasure, relationships, and everything in between. I'm your host, Emma Hewitt, a sex educator and sex toy enthusiast. Every episode, I take a deep dive into a fascinating new topic, talk to experts, and answer common sex questions. Because sex is normal, messy, pleasurable, intimidating, and a hell of a lot of fun. Let's take a ride. I get it that we don't want a new infection. Nobody does. I don't want a cold or the flu, but these things are part of the human experience and they're super incredibly common. The vast majority of all people contract an STI at some point in their lives, but no one's talking about it. I'm speaking with Janelle Marie Pierce. She's a certified sex educator and the founder of the STI Project, which works to educate and empower those with an STI to live a happy life and maintain healthy relationships with partners that still includes amazing sex. In this episode, we're talking about STIs. It's an important part of our sex lives and well-being, but for many of us, just like our sex education, our STI education was probably pretty shit. Putting a condom on a banana, seeing scary photos of extreme cases, and being told that an STI means game over for your partner's sex life. Which is bullshit, by the way. STIs are more common than many people realise, and being diagnosed with one doesn't need to be a big deal. It's not ideal, of course, but it's also not the end of the world. In fact, for many STIs, treatments exist which allow you to live a completely normal life with minimal symptoms and without transmitting them to anyone else. In this episode, we do some STI myth busting, get tips on how to talk to your lovers, friends and family about an STI diagnosis and talk about whether you need to tell your sexual partners about having an STI. The answer to which is yes. And Janelle has some amazing tips for how to do this. She contracted herpes when she was 16 and admits that dealing with that at such a young age wasn't easy. Oh my gosh, yeah. And I mean, high school is hard enough as it is. Being a teenager is hard enough as it is. And then couple that with a taboo infection, a sexually transmitted infection. And it was just, it was absolutely miserable. And I felt like life was over for me. I really did. For a long time after that, I had a hard time disclosing. I didn't know, and I didn't always do it the most ethical way. And that's part of why I started the work that I do in such a very direct and honest and authentic, I mean, very vulnerable way. Like I talk about my experience of not always disclosing before engaging in activities and putting people at risk and then and then learning how to disclose and how to do it in a way that was ethical. And I do that on purpose because I feel like Even though that was not the right decision, even good people, people who aren't just inherently bad can make bad decisions and do things that they don't feel proud about. And I knew I wasn't the only one in that experience and having and having done that. And so I was like, if we are going to fix the problem, we have to at least first admit that it exists to begin with. And so now I'm now, of course, I'm very public about my status. So I disclose in a whole different way. But it took a lot of trial and error, basically, to figure out what was a really practical and effective and relevant way that felt like me. And having lived that experience and kind of knowing what you do now, how do you think that people should approach the conversation in a positive and an ethical way? Are there some tips that you can share? Definitely. Okay. So before putting people at risk is probably the first one. So before engaging in any activities, Mm. clothed and sober so that we can ensure that coercion isn't happening and that people are able to make fully informed, conscientious decisions 
without feeling influenced or under pressure. And then from there, it gets a little bit more supportive of the person who has an STI because the onus and the responsibility always feels like it's primarily on the person who has an STI, but STI disclosure is truly a safer sex conversation. It's reciprocal. A conversation is back and forth and includes and is amongst all parties involved. And so that's really how we want to frame it because responsibility and sexual responsibility is everyone's responsibility, not just the person who has a known infection. And so Mm -hmm. from there, the person who does, though, have a known infection and is doing the disclosure gets to decide the environment that is safe for them, whether that's text message or direct face-to-face or on an app, et cetera, like what feels safe and is going to be effective and authentic for them. And then they also get to decide what information they'd like to share. Of course, we know that, yes, you have to disclose your status, for fully informed consent to happen, but nobody has a right to any further information about your sexual history, number of partners, how you contracted it, unless that's part of the story that you want to share and that just feels right in the moment for you, then that's great. I also think it's important to try to do your very best to remain neutral and confident as best as possible, not because we're trying to encourage coercion, but because we're trying to display the actual lived experience of having an STI. The stigma is really awful, but the actual experience of having the infection itself is usually relatively quite benign for most folks. So we want to try and and model that as best as we can. But if you do get emotional, that's okay. Honor yourself and be gracious because that may be the space that you're in at that point in time. And then I like to give like one or two resources, usually a factual kind of clinical, like this is the symptoms and this is how to treat it, et cetera. And then I encourage like a storytelling platform. It doesn't necessarily have to be my own, the STI project or something like along those lines that humanizes the experience and showcases how common it is and what that actually looks like to have an STI. And then from there, take a beat and give that person space, that person or person space to make the decision. And of course, this is going to be easier said than done, but do your very best not to take it personally or try your best not to take it personally. And like I said, that's easier said than done because rejection sucks no matter who you are and what kind of rejection we're talking about. But really their no is just a yes someplace else for you and is not representative of who you are. It's just where they're at in that time and whether or not they're willing to consider that risk. So STIs are common, and because of this, there has been really great advancement in treatments. So why do you think there is still so much of this shame around STIs? Oh, I mean, you just pointed out a couple of key points. I mean, like, yeah, it seems like something that we should be comfortable talking about, right? Like sex cells and sex cells deodorant and socks. and mm-hmm. But when it actually comes to talking about some of the not ideal consequences, even though this is part of our human experience, it's like everybody is mum is the word and just totally shies away from it. And we really aren't given a lot of practical examples in our culture. Like, what does that look like? What does this conversation look like? And how do we make it not awkward? And so I think that's part of it. I think that the fact is that we're not talking about it from a practical normal standpoint it's very sensationalized like again Mm -hmm. i get it that we don't want a new infection nobody does i don't want a cold or the flu but these things are part of the human experience and they're super incredibly common the vast majority of all people contract an sti at some point in their lives but no one's talking about it but these things happen you know it's not ideal but they happen 
And do you think that there is a direct connection then to sex education in schools? So here in NZ, basically you learn that if you get an STI, your sex life is over. And that's obviously not the case. Do you think that schools can better inform our young people around STIs? And what age would you say that that's actually important to start getting educated? That is such a great question. As a new parent myself, it should be an ongoing conversation, not just to like sit down and have the talk, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Like it's an ongoing learning opportunity to be comprehensive about our education and not this, what we traditionally see as shame-based abstinence only and comprehensive sexual health education includes abstinence only education as well, but it expands that and encourages choice and decision-making. And it's been proven via research that the more that we empower our adolescents and young adults with sexual health education, the less likely that they are to engage in risky behaviors, the more likely they are to encompass safer sex practices. And then the older at an age that they decide to have their sexual debut. So it's all beneficial the more that we provide this comprehensive information. What role does the media play, do you think? I feel like in my personal experience, I've never really seen a positive portrayal of STIs in popular films or TV shows. Can you think of any examples where that's been the case? They tend to be the butt of jokes. Oh, absolutely. It's always the butt of jokes. It's like the last bastion of acceptable shaming. I mean, we know we no longer can degrade somebody based on their race and their religion, their sexual orientation even. But when it comes to STIs, there are very few people who will speak up and say, hey, wait a minute, like that's me. That's my experience. That doesn't feel good to hear you talk about it in that way or to other me or to categorize this entire group of people as a certain subset. It doesn't make any logical sense, but it still is utilized. To be honest, it's a very lazy joke that's used in all comedy. You see this in tons of comedic, you know, stand up as well as movies and all over the place. And just nobody stops Mm -hmm. and says, wait a minute, that's just not funny. It's just old. You know, there's nothing unique about it at this point. Now, in 2019, the CDC, so the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, reported that the US was on track for a six consecutive year of record STI numbers. And then, of course, COVID hit and those numbers dropped back down. So in your opinion, what can we take away from this report? What impact do you think COVID has had on sex and STI rates? What's interesting about that is whenever we look at those statistics, whenever we look at media headlines like that, it's like they're skyrocketing, it's an epidemic. And Mm -hmm. it's not to say that the numbers aren't increasing, but why have they been increasing? Are they increasing because more people are getting tested? We've seen this with COVID. Or are they increasing because the population who are of sexually active ages are increasing? And is it per capita or is it higher than the per capita increase a year over year. And CDC has a fiduciary incentive because (laughs) they want federal dollars to go toward their STI prevention programs, which is not a negative endeavor, of course. It's all beneficial overall for public health. So they're not assuaging the media from utilizing these headlines, but these headlines then start to make this kind of fear-mongering and this worry and this perception that the numbers are either higher than they are or that they are a result of specific kinds of behavior. And we don't necessarily know that until you actually look at that fine print. And the fine print even says the numbers are actually even higher than that Mm. because 
what the CDC is reporting on is only a few infections, the reportable infections that are tested and that get sent to the CDC. So they're all different types of STIs that aren't necessarily part of routine testing, that aren't necessarily getting reported, and those aren't included. So the numbers are even higher than they are, which sounds worrisome, but you have to look at what we're actually talking about, the the details behind that, the fine print, and that's not what's getting printed, of course, in the media. So with that being said, can we actually get some sense from the current data around how common STIs actually are? It does say in the fine print that the speculated number about how many people have an STI at any one point in time is much higher than that. Like I think the last number was 21 million even a small percentage of people are only getting tested regularly. So the number of people who regularly get tested per year is anywhere from 12 to 15% of all sexually active people. So a very small percentage of the population is even getting tested to begin with. Mm -hmm. So we're not capturing the vast majority of all infections. Not that I would thank COVID for anything, but it's helped us to understand the word asymptomatic and Mm -hmm. STIs are similar in that you can have an infection and not know that you have an infection. And so you can be asymptomatic and the only way to know is to get tested. The vast majority of all people contract an STI at some point in their lives. Again, not ideal, and that's not what we're looking for. We would love to prevent more infections, but it is a just a natural consequence of sharing our bodies intimately and being in that kind of close proximity with someone else, just like other infections are that are very common, like the cold and the flu and now like COVID, unfortunately. Yeah, I think the majority of people actually don't understand just how common they are. So with that in mind, what do you think is the best way to prevent an STI? Is there actually such a thing as safe sex or is abstinence really the only answer? I mean, the only 100% safe sex, of course, is abstinence, is no sex whatsoever. (laughs) But we like to say safer sex when we're talking about sexual health and in the public health field because there are things that can make these activities safer. And I mean, it's important, I think, to frame this in a more neutral perspective of like being a sexually active individual and in tune with your sexuality. And so how to do that in a way that reduces risk as much as possible with the awareness that everything we do in our life, literally, there's risk and reward, and we have to discern which risks we're willing to accept and which risks we want to mitigate. And so in terms of comprehensive safer sex, there's a few different components. Barriers, which are really common and people are familiar with. Condoms, of course, internal and external. Dental dams. You can even use saran wrap if it's non-microwavable and non-porous and in replace of a dental dam because dental dams aren't easily accessible and you don't see them very often. Lube reduces risk. That's surprising to a lot. I always say that lube should be everyone's friend if feels good, first of all, but it reduces the tiny cuts and tears that can happen as a result of partnered sexual activity, so both front and back. And then getting tested regularly before and after each new partner is like the gold standard, but as often as you can, and that's accessible to you, as well as having conversations. Having a dialogue about sexual health and safer sex is part of reducing your overall risk because you're being cognizant of one another's bodies and your health practices and what is going to be your needs and boundaries and what you need to pursue and what your expectations are in terms of safety. And then also considering reducing substances 
and activities that may hinder your decision-making process. That's minimizing or reducing the number of concurrent partners and or spacing them a little farther between, et cetera. So there are lots of things that you can consider that will help reduce your overall risk. And that, of course, like I said, we can't eliminate it, but you can always encompass what is going to make sense for you and your practices and you and your relationships. Now, with advances in treatment, many people with STIs are able to live normal, you know, happy and sexually fulfilling lives. So when it comes to manageable STIs, something like herpes, what do we need to know about it? How is transmission controlled and how do we actually treat it? Yes. Oh, that's such a good question because the assumption is that they're life altering and ending and that you can't engage in sexual activities and you absolutely are going to transmit it to a partner if you have an STI. And very interestingly enough, a study had just come out recently that specifically states that folks with a known STI status are less likely to transmit their infection than someone with an unknown status. I mean, we know that the vast majority of all people are going to contract an STI at some point. Some are curable and go away on their own. Some you never even know you had. But then a lot of them are long-term or forever infections. And if that's the case, if so many people have these long-term and forever infections, are all these people not engaging in sexual activities? Of course not, especially like you said, with herpes in particular, because it's so stigmatized, it's so common, and people are absolutely petrified of like, okay, if I contract it, And now that I have it, that means I'm going to automatically transmit it to all my partners. No one will ever want to be with me. How is this ever going to work? And I've had multiple partners from an anecdotal personal experience who have never contracted herpes from me. And this is then shared and echoed by thousands of people that I've worked with throughout the last 10 years of doing this work. And Really, you can do a combination of things from the comprehensive safer sex methods that I've already mentioned. And then also with herpes, because it's a virus, you take suppressive therapy, which is an antiviral every single day that cuts their risk in half. And then things like not engaging in activities when you have an outbreak specifically, but then also not engaging in activities when you feel prodrome symptoms come on, which is just basically signs and symptoms that you may be getting an outbreak sometime soon. Not everybody does, but the folks who do get outbreaks have some symptoms leading up to that outbreak. All of those practices combined can make it actually very easy for your partner to not get herpes from you. So much of that was new to me, particularly around the antivirals and being able to keep partners safe. So on that point, what do you think the future holds for STIs? Do you think that we'll ever see cures for these infections? You know, I don't think, I mean, certainly not in my lifetime will we see a cure for all of these infections, nor will we see a cure for stigma. Unfortunately, I wish I were wrong, but I really would be surprised, even in my daughter's lifetime. I think that stigma is going to persist. It's persists for millennia. I do still think that we can take a crack at improving the experience for those who contract an STI and that we can make the prevention and being conscientious for overall sexual health, a lot less painful feeling for folks. And I don't know that cures are necessarily the answer because it's not super easy. And there are over 30 STIs, according to the World Health Organization. So that would be a lot of research that just 
is not even in the works right now. There are some vaccines and cures down in the pipeline, but not for the vast majority of all of these infections. But even so, you mentioned this earlier too, and you were talking about them being treatable and manageable. And that's the thing, all of these 30 plus STIs, they're either treatable or they're manageable, one or the other. They're not a death sentence and it's not the end of the world for your overall life as well as your sex life. So it doesn't have to be doom and gloom like the perception is in the public eye. Yeah, I think you're so right about that. I think the best thing that we can really do at the moment is just have more conversations about it and help to normalize it. So finally, Janelle, I would like to do a little quick fire yes or no round if that is okay with you. Yes, let's do it. Amazing. Okay. First, are cold sores herpes? Yes. Okay, I know I said yes or no, but can you really, really quickly expand on that a little bit? Because I feel like this is a confusing one for people. Absolutely. So cold sores are like traditionally are viewed as the good herpes or not a big deal, but herpes can be HSV-1, HSV-2. And it used to be that HSV-1 was above the waist, was more traditionally thought of as cold sores. And then HSV-2 was more thought of as genital herpes. But now we know that both HSV-1 and HSV-2 can be in both locations. Both can exist orally and both can exist genitally. One prefers one location, the other prefers the other location, but we see them in both. And now HSV-1 in particular is really commonly being spread to the genitals through oral sex. So your cold sores Mm. are herpes. They can be spread to the genitals through oral sex. Mm. Good to know. Okay, back to quickfire. Can I get an STI from being in a hot tub or a spa pool in New Zealand with someone who has one? No. Can I get an STI from a toilet seat? No. (laughs) Do I need to tell someone I am STI positive before sleeping with them, even if we're going to be using a condom? Yes. Are condoms 100% reliable to prevent an STI? No. And because this podcast is sponsored by Adult Toy Megastore, can I pass along an STI by sharing sex toys? You can, yes. Janelle, thanks so much for joining me and sharing your knowledge. I've really learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have too. It is my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Electric Rodeo podcast for Adult Toy Megastore, produced by Sound Cartel. Follow Electric Rodeo free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more sex and relationships explained, follow at Electric Rodeo Podcast on Instagram. Mm-hmm.